1: Is something from the Todd Feinberg Show? Listen to the podcast on WTIC.com slash podcast. WTIC. Ned Lamont. You remember him? He's still governor. It's such a tragedy for humanity and for the state of Connecticut more acutely. Listen to him giving his, uh, is this an inaugural address or state of the state address? I don't know. Or are they merged into a single thing? It's still the same agonizing, patronizing, contrived nonsense and drivel.
2: Watching my amazing wife. Where's my amazing wife? Watching my amazing wife um, invest in great entrepreneurs. So I'm a proud husband. I'm a very proud dad. And sort of an up and down Yankees fan.
1: Does anyone think he cares about the Yankees and and watches games with uh, any excitement? (laughs) And then listen to the laugh to to see how sincere he is about that Yankees thing.
2: (laughs) That got you going. Um,
1: That got you going. Ah, We tricked you with that one. You think I like sports.
2: So I want you all to remember this is a citizen legislature huh and I get it the Republicans are generally over here and the Democrats are over there and you have caucuses and you have leaders but you're also much more than that yeah what you bring in different experiences and backgrounds to the table
1: but but everybody votes their party ninety percent what what's the big deal about their experiences if the experiences don't become activated in the process Explain that one to me, Ned, would you? What do we care if they have different experiences, if they all fall into line?
2: And we're all much better for it. You know, perhaps you ran for office because you wanted to fix something that ticked you off. ticked you off, huh? And you were a teacher, coach, business, labor, community volunteer. I don't know what inspired you, but I urge you at the end of that hearing, grab a beer or a cup of coffee with that member to your left or right.
1: Grab a beer or a cup of coffee with that member to your left or right. Yeah, just go right up to the top of the parking garage and have a party and get to know each other a little bit so you can be all the more human and compassionate when you vote straight party line to dismantle the American system of government and infuse more, more debt and more communism and socialism into our society. The drivel, he reads.
2: See what you have in common and listen for what you don't have in common.
1: And then vote straight party line. 8605 Time for us to check in on your ride home. Mark Christopher in the BPS Lawyers Traffic Center. Hey, Mark. It's the Todd Feinberg Show, live from the NJ
0: Diet Studios on WTIC News Talk 1080.
1: WTIC. I, As, as you know from listening to me, I love markets. I think that really there is only one way of doing things in the world, and that is to have everything be market-driven. And anything otherwise isn't really a system it's a bastardization of the system by those who want to be able to steal more of the wealth that's my take on it and you hear it all the time but i wanted to bring people in who have their um well different ways of looking at markets from a positive point of view and dr richard Salzman joins us from the atlas society as in ayn rand and um he's a professor and a and a businessman i guess and all kinds of good stuff so let's say good afternoon to Professor Salzman. Thanks for being here, sir.
3: I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Todd.
1: So do you agree with me that markets are the only game in town?
3: Yes. But here's the thing. Most people think that markets are great because they deliver the goods. You know, the long history of capitalism delivering prosperity. That's true. But the emphasis at the Atlas Society, certainly in the writings of Ayn Rand, was that it's also moral. That is much more, as you know, Todd. That is much more controversial. People will, might say, "Well, markets uh, do deliver the goods, but they're greedy and they're rife with self-interest and the profit motive, and so they're suspect on a moral grounds." So, if you have the case that it's both practical and moral, that'd be a different combination. Well, you know, that be,
1: what's your you defense? What, what do you say when they make that argument?
3: Well, part of it is just an assumption of what is the good, and this is in ethics, this really comes from philosophies more than economics, and, and for a long time, the view was, you're moral if you serve others, not yourself. And then, and then a real test of morality, this, some of this comes from religion, but not only from religion, I don't want to beat up on religion, but, but self-sacrifice, the idea of the nobility of sacrifice, and serving others, and sometimes even turning the other cheek and serving your enemies. Now, so, capitalism isn't based on any of that. Capitalism is based on the pursuit of self-interest, you know, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, we pursue our own happiness. Now, we indirectly benefit uh, others, you know, who we trade with, family members, and things like that. But we're not doing it out of sacrifice. We're doing it out of mutual benefit, to mutual advantage, and that's the wonderful thing about capitalism. So, so most of it is is like an underlying bias about what's considered moral. So, if we if we more have the view that what's moral, truly moral, is advancing our lives in a, in a fresh and benevolent way and not hurting others. But, but being bold about it and saying, no, I'm not going to sacrifice myself or, you know, live the ascetic life that some of the environmentalists want us to live, that that's really the case for capitalism. It's a moral case, but it's also a practical case.
1: I don't argue the moral case, but I, I don't and I, you know, I don't disagree with that Randian kind of view. But the thing is to me that the most moral thing about markets is that they allow the right things to to, uh, move in the marketplace. And they allow the largest number of people to be properly served by an effective and well-functioning economy. And there's so much morality in that. It seems like a simpler argument than getting into all that stuff about the virtue of selfishness and such.
3: Except that the Animosity toward capitalism is exactly at the moral level. And even when you see people who, like, you know, Marxists will sometimes say this. Environmentalists, they'll say we admit that capitalism produces the good, but that's not necessarily good. They'll say we're eating up the planet, or we're doing it at the expense of labor, or we're doing it at the expense of the third world. So, uh, I think if you're, I think if you want a sustained argument for capitalism, you have, you do have to defend this underlying ethic. Now, the one you named is interesting, Todd. You said something like, well, the markets are good because they produce good things. That's questioned by a lot of anti-capitalists, right? They'll say, we have too much abundance. We have too much convenience, the, you know, the tyranny of, of excess, and especially if there's unequal wealth right uh, how do you defend the inequality of I have
1: no problem wealth. with unequal yeah. wealth as a matter of fact I think we Not need I, we need more wealth inequality to have more I rich agree. people to defend us from big <laughs> government so big government is such an evil in yeah, my mind right, that right. anything you want to hang around the neck of capitalists <laughs> is nonsense
3: <laughs> right so why do you think people are anti-capitalist
1: just because they repeat nonsense uh, that they hear part one and part two they're jealous of people who have a lot and it's an easy uh sentiment to trigger when you haven't trained minds to understand things at a finer level so the the anti-capitalists have in this country destroyed education and because they run it as a socialist enterprise and and that's put them at a big advantage for the uh, big advantage for the brainwashing right
3: right totally agree with that the I've often said that uh, it's well known that public ownership of the means of production fails, cr- you know, creates poverty. That's socialism. That's Marxism. But what about public ownership of the means of instruction? As you put it, the schools. We're destroying human capital because it's run by government. And, you know, by the way, even parents who I under- totally understand go to school board meetings and complain, they, they, the bigger picture is those are school boards run by commissars, in effect. So why do we even have them? I believe in a complete privatization of the education system, complete privatization. No government provision of something so delicate and important as to the influencing of our kids and their shaping of their minds. So I totally agree with you on that. That's the capitalist argument. We have a mixed system today, as you know. The fact that they even call them public schools, they're really government schools and in no other area have we ever found that government provision of services is is high quality or or affordable who would
1: ever uh, sign up for having the government deliver a service you know if the government said it was going to develop a much better system much more efficient than say uh, amazon and for us to get our deliveries faster are you kidding me they they wouldn't have a chance to get one package across the finish line first
3: yeah so you know you mentioned rights i mean the right to educate your kid the right to choose your own schools capitalism is based on that too But you have to admit the Randian argument for this is our rights are in many ways egoistic. You know, what you're saying is I have a right to my life, my freedom, my liberty, my choice, the pursuit of my happiness. And and people do really resist that because they think that sounds selfish. I'm not selfish. I'm doing this for the greater good. I'm for capitalism because it produces charity or I'm for capitalism because it helps the greater good. Now, indirectly, it does do that, but it but it sounds like a defensive, you know, almost a kind of apologetic case for capitalism, and the, and the Ayn Rand approach is be bold about it, be bold in recognizing and shameless, really, in recognizing this is the uniquely American system. We've lost the American system, we're losing capitalism, but it's mostly because people are just trying to make others feel guilty for success, for happiness, for the pursuit of pleasures in life.
1: But there's also a, um, a feeling of guilt, uh, I think, hmm. among some well-educated people. Agreed. that that they've got too much and there's something, yeah. there's an inequity. But if you look at across the board how much better people do in America, how much uh, better quality of life is for the poor, for right. example, yeah. what exactly is there to argue with other than the things that government has made a mess of?
3: There isn't, and the, even the government provision of welfare. I mean, prior to the welfare state, say prior to the FDR New Deal year, There was enormous voluntary private charity uh you know we know well of the carnegie hall for example from andrew carnegie Mm -hmm. the carnegie libraries a whole bunch of things now i wouldn't say that's the primary justification for capitalism but you could see why someone who makes a fortune feels very benevolent toward the system and feels the need to you know engage in philanthropy uh when government takes that over it's a complete mess it makes people completely dependent on the government uh, and the government kind of wants that because it can go to the uh, electorate every four years and say, you need me. All the scare tactics over Social Security all these years. Yes, I think, I think the entire welfare state is, is, is actually a moral abomination. But in practical terms, it definitely ruins people's lives. That's for sure. I think, what, uh, by the way, the, I was on Wall Street for many years, and I noticed that successful people often felt guilty. I felt the same thing in academia as a professor. And I think part of it is they don't quite understand what success requires. And they feel a lot of it is, is luck, or they're told that a lot of it is just sheer luck mm. and that they don't deserve anything. So that that idea that you have no control or no say in the results of your life, the authorship of your life, that is really not true. People do have free will. Yeah, things are not always caused in the way you want. But Yeah, I would
1: even true. argue that luck is yeah. a part of a, a skill set of success and, and that there are ways to position yourself to catch the wave. and. Go out there and, and and learn those as well. We're talking to Dr. Richard Salzman. Are you a visiting professor at Duke, or, or is that well, something I know, in your past?
3: The, the good news is I'm no longer visiting. I am there. So, You're stuck. I said, yeah, I I've been teaching politics and economics at Duke now for about eight or nine years or so. Absolutely love it. Well, one of the seminars I teach the students is capitalism for and against. So I give a very balanced account that says, well, what are the arguments for capitalism? And what are the arguments against? And on all levels, you know, the economic, the the political, the moral, even the issue of sustainability. Is capitalism a sustainable system or is it doomed to failure for various reasons? So I I love teaching the students. The students are mixed, as you can imagine. They're not all left wing as the media. Oh, but they have
1: to hear from people like you. There must be a lot of left wingism.
3: Uh, there is, and as long as they get a balanced approach. I mean, the joke is, wait a minute, there's an argument for capitalism. Why are you giving a balanced <laughs> Why are you giving a balanced account of capitalism? Well, it's this enormously amazing, successful, resilient system. Students need to know about it, uh, you know, the good and the bad of it. So uh, that's what I try to teach.
1: It's a victim of its own success, perhaps.
3: Maybe. But uh, that does sound a little weird, right? Like, why would people hate success? Just as they seem to envy and, and feel jealous over successful people, why should there be any resentment over a successful system? I mean, I, I often refer to capitalism as the optimal habitat for humanity, so I'm kind of grabbing the words of the environmentalists. But, but it truly is that. You cannot find any other social system that has been so good to humans, longevity of life, health, happiness, wealth. And so it's kind of odd that humans would be against that system. You, you you know, it's it's like fish being against water. Wait a minute. Why would you be against water? This is necessary for your flourishing and success. Uh, let's learn about this system and come to love it.
1: But if you look at what affluence does, and, and capitalism is great at bringing economic success to more people and lifting everybody up, and the American system has been brilliant in that way, not just for Americans, but for people all over the world. So if you look at what affluence has done to americans how puffy and undefined and confused we've become as we sit watching netflix cursing the door that the pizza delivery hasn't come yet (laughs) there there's kind of a you know there's a problem there that's the real problem i see with capitalism everyone's life gets so good that how can we protect capitalism that
3: that is one of the arguments that uh is sometimes hard to refute because the first part of what you describe is absolutely true. It, it delivers convenience, it delivers abundance, and some people would say it delivers softness and laziness. And if so, that doesn't sound like the capitalist ethic either. The only way around that, Todd, that I can think of is just to have more of a a philosophy that says, listen, it isn't just about the job, and it just isn't about the paycheck. It's about self-esteem, it's about self-respect, it's about the dignity of going to work every day. And and by the way, it doesn't have to be money. I mean, people in the arts, in engineering, in medicine, you know, capitalism is the system of freedom, and so you're free to develop your talents in all sorts of different ways. But certainly, sloth and parasitism on others, uh, purposefulness, purposelessness in life, those aren't those aren't really moral. Uh, pursuits. So uh, if capitalism is thought of more as a moral system, I don't think you'd have that kind of uh, laziness and, and
1: sloth. By the way, I think that um, socialism isn't really about controlling the means of production. It's about hmm. controlling the, the largest portion possible of economic activity so that hmm. the government can help, can control everything. It's just for the government class, for the leeches and the you know the plunderers to be able to control more with an upfront premise and i think we've suffered in this country with it being a back-end premise you know first make it rich and then over time we can steal all the wealth and now they use our own wealth that we've generated to overtax us and use that money to directly convey assets to those who are core constituencies so they get their votes
3: Yeah, so this brings up an issue of the the potential clash between, this will sound weird to most people, but the clash between democracy and capitalism. Because as you know, democracy in politics is kind of deified as the best system, the Mm -hmm. only system. But if all it means is mob rule, if all it means is the majority gets to vote away the rights and wealth of others, that is a problem.
1: And And that's where we are now, right?
3: It is. But the original American system, if you remember, was, no, constitutionally limited government. Yes. So you do have the right to vote on things, but you can't vote a rate, a vote away other people's rights and, and wealth. And that's what's happened under yes. the welfare state. That's what Dr.
1: Richard Salzman, nice to have you here. Do you have a book you want to plug or anything? Website?
3: I have. Uh, thanks for saying that. First of all, go to the atlassociety.org if you want more. I have my own website as well, richardsalzman.com. But the recent book is Where Have All the Capitalists Gone?, so you can go to Amazon. I have a page on Amazon with five of my books.
1: Did you co-write that with is. Pete Seeger? Uh,
3: no. <laughs> and the other one, by the way, a recent one, a shorter one, Pocket Guide to Capitalism. People are going to kick out of that one,
1: too. I like it. Good stuff. Dr. Richard Salzman. What's the website Thanks, again? Todd.
3: The website for me is Richard Salzman, salsma com. That's where all my stuff is.
1: Great to have you here. Let's do it again. Thanks, Thanks Todd. Enjoy. It. Yeah, he's from the Atlas Society. Miss something from the Todd Feinberg Show? Listen to the podcast on
0: WTIC.com slash podcast.
1: Yep, WTIC. Ned Lamont, governor again. Hard to believe another four years. Looks like a very small period of time when it's over. When it's just starting out, it feels enormous. He talks such nonsense.
2: We have four new legislators who are not born in the United States of America.
1: Listen to how happy that makes
2: him. Listen. Born in the United States of America, he's so excited. Senator MD Rahman from Bangladesh. Where's MD? There you are, an amazing entrepreneur.
1: Has he invested a lot, Ned, in Bangladesh? Why is he so excited? Is this one of Annie's entrepreneurs?
2: Joe Hoxha from Albania. There you are.
1: Joe Hoxha, Republican.
2: Hey Joe, tell Dua Lipa how cool Connecticut is, will you? Hector Arzano from Argentina.
1: How cool Connecticut is. How cool is it? It's pretty cool. It's true.
2: Hector Arzano from Argentina.
1: Don't cry for me.
2: Rachel Connor from France. They're neighbors in Greenwich and little France, little Argentina. I'd love to hear those World Cup squabbles as they do the long commute up to Hartford.
1: Oh, my Lord. There is not a sincere thought that passes through his brain down to his lips.
2: More importantly, whether you're born in Argentina or France or Bangladesh or Albania, thank you for making Connecticut your home. And that's not woke. That's America.
1: Oh, who wrote that line? Thank Give me an extra five bucks for that one. That's not woke. That's what do you say?
2: And that's not woke. That's America.
1: <laughs> well, that's a good thing. People from other countries getting involved in public life because I I think they will. People from other countries, I believe, will be on average more loyal to the American system. It, it, I think people who've migrated here it's more acutely apparent of america's greatness not something to be destroyed the way the democrats are doing but something to be honored that line got a lot of applause yikes
2: well i'm added. i want to give a special shout out to sarah She's a student at Gateway Community College. She hails from Afghanistan, oh, man. where the Taliban no longer allow girls <laughs> to go to college.
1: Yep, you get to go to college if you're a girl in Connecticut, because Ned's governor. Eight six zero five two two nine eight four two. Now back to the Todd
0: Feinberg Show, live from the NJ Diet Studios on WTIC News Talk 1080.
1: So happy to be here with you on a Wednesday afternoon. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Before we get to Joe Markley, let's just say hi to Bill in Newington. Hey, Bill.
4: Hi. I'm having a hard trouble trying to find out who's voting for what ethical reasons between Jordan, Jeffries, and um, whoever else. Um, McCarthy. McCarthy. Um, Harbor Current. Let me just read two, three quick paragraphs.
1: No, no, that's too much reading. What is it you want to say? Tell one us what paragraph. you want to say. Okay, one paragraph. Go ahead.
4: It says, um, "There's one person who could have changed all this," said Republican Scott Perry. Re- republican pennsylvania chairman of freedom caucus which was i know associated with trump for one reason and they can said if you want to drain the swamp you can't put the biggest alligator in control of of the exercise and they're talking about mccarthy what are they talking about
1: they're talking about the fact that he is not ideological he is yeah, a political why? player, and he's ambitious and wants to be Speaker of the House, but he doesn't stand for anything in their perception. And I, I think that's probably the right perception. So that's why they're upset. But the question with the Freedom Caucus is, Do they actually, are they actually trying to propel an ideology, or are they just trying to be people who um, buck the power structure because they know voters – Find that exciting, and, and that's my concern about them. Thank you for the call, Bill. Joe Markley is here. Kind of a good lead-in to you, Joe. Yeah, it's just what I was wanting
5: to uh, talk about, Todd. Because I think I know how this is going to play out. And okay, I'm tell us. To stick
1: my neck out. Okay. Do you have a little background music for the séance or whatever we're doing here?
5: Or or a, a drum roll, but yes. it's, it's going to be a long drum roll. So let's skip that. Hey, you know. The interesting thing, the comment you just made is also a a, a good lead in, which is, um, what's the Freedom Caucus all about? Are they really wanting to drive things in an ideological direction, or do they just want to make a change for the sake of change? And I think the answer may be both of those things. In other words, to drive something in an ideological direction requires a certain disruption. And And I think that um, I think they're unlikely to um, to back down. And, you know, they got they, they got very little incentive to back down at this point. I remember the scene in uh, uh, um, Pulp Fiction where a, a guy comes out of the bathroom and shoots at Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta and empties his pistol, and all, every shot misses. Mm-hmm. And then he's standing there. That would be their position. They say, "Hey, we voted against you. We voted against you. We voted against you." Now we want to come back in. There would be nothing there for them. And they'd have to go back to their people. These are guys that, before the election, out in their district, guys and gals, said, I'm not voting for McCarthy again because he's a part of the problem. He's he's been too acquiescent with the Democrats. I'm not going to do it. How do you go back to your people and do it? So I think that the chances, I think there's just about zero chance that McCarthy gets back at this point I think you need back 16 of the 20 people that have voted against him. He's only going to lose votes. This is the problem. It's the problem with being the front runner: is you start at a number, and then...
1: And then you go down from there. Then you go down. Because of there. the binary nature of this thing, it just... Uh, you, you If you don't have the support up front and pound it through, that would be everyone's preference. Then it's unlikely to happen. But let's go back to the Freedom Caucus thing, Joe. Yeah, what sure. What exactly is the Freedom Caucus's upside here in disrupting everything where is the payoff to them of potentially embarrassing the party and weakening it right off the bat as it enters a two-year period that's going to be very difficult because there's such an even split between the two parties and the republicans who are supposedly the majority party aren't don't have a majority inside the party that believe the same things so that means they're not going to be able to vote for stuff so what is the win if we look at this in 18 months are we likely to see that the freedom caucus has caused any more freedom to exist i yes i think so and obviously this is a worst case thing
5: for the republican party as a whole this is very bad news And that includes the Freedom Caucus. It includes everybody. And nobody, I don't think any of them want to damage the Republican Party. But there's never a good time to be a disruptor. Somebody's always going to say to you, yeah, I understand you've got a problem, but this is the wrong moment. We can't do it now. And that's their problem. This is... For them, this is not the wrong moment. They've got the leverage.
1: Well, I understand, and- but you're talking tactics, and I'm curious in what the end game is ideologically. They claim to be the ideological ones who don't like McCarthy because they can't trust him to pursue their values. But what are their values and to what extent are they actually pursuing values as opposed to the fact that there is a core constituency in the Republican Party that likes Donald Trump and they want to have that constituency with them? Aren't they just making a play for those voters?
5: I think the Freedom Caucus is not the Trump Caucus. I think it really is the conservative caucus. There may be overlap, but I don't think it's the same thing. They existed before Trump and they'll exist after Trump. What they'll get if they win, Todd, and a win is denying McCarthy. What they get is a scalp. And the point of the scalp, I mean, partly, yes, for, to go back to their own districts and say, I told you I was going to get rid of McCarthy, and they did. That's That will play for them. But it also will tell whoever becomes the next leader, you can't ignore us in the future. Um, we are willing to go to the wall on this stuff. And, um, and And the next time that we say we can't go along with this deal, don't do it. Um, remember what happened to McCarthy, because that's what he did to us. And in that sense, it's not that there's any particular ideological thing that will happen because of them doing it. But the, a future leader, whoever he is, and it could be just the same politics as McCarthy, is really going to have to say, I better make sure that I'm, I, that I'm not making – I'm not uh, – throwing the freedom caucus under the bus
1: yeah well but that's good for the freedom caucus i'm wondering what's good for republicans because if republicans are the only opposition party which as far as i can tell they're the only ones who are there to fight the democrats if they're made weaker year after year by shenanigans like uh the the candidates who were lousy who were pushed into into holding their states nominations or their districts nominations in the last election by getting the support of Donald Trump because he wanted to you know he wanted to try to wrest control of the party into his hands and now we've got the freedom caucus trying to wrest control of the party into their hands where what what if we go through another 2 years of destruction of electoral possibilities and republicans become a more minor party over time
5: I think the Freedom Caucus, which, again, I think is an ideological caucus. Remember, if they were a Trump caucus at this point, Trump is, is, is doing everything he can to get McCarthy across the line. So if they were just listening to Trump, they'd be with McCarthy. If they want to move the party to the right, they've got to stop, start by saying, don't keep accommodating the Democrats. And if you do, there's going to be consequences. And the consequence is what has happened yesterday and today. Um, they had to be at a certain point. They had to be willing uh, to do this, whether you call it a nuclear option or whatever. They had to be willing to go to the mat, go to the mattresses um, on this fight in order to make the point for future leadership. And I well, think I hear that. that.
1: And, and if that's all that's it that's is, I'm fine. I'm just concerned that we're going to be stuck in a cycle of the Republican Party getting weaker by losing And this doesn't look good in the best of circumstances to have a six-vote majority or five-vote majority, whatever it is, in Congress. That gives you technical control so that everyone can say that Republicans run Congress, but you can't really run Congress with a five-vote majority. So they're already going to look bad, Republicans, at the end of this two-year cycle going into the next presidential election. And this stuff threatens to make it look even worse.
5: And the alternative, is, however, is this is the kind of Republican politics that you don't like either, which is refusing to stand up to the Democrats and being more concerned about placating the, the moderates in the party and, the, and and their opponents than listening to the real conservatives who are the are the people are the principled people within the party.
1: Yeah, but and couldn't they that- make a list of things that they cared about and said, here are things we will oppose you on moving forward? And the uh, there are other things we will compromise on in order that we can survive as a party.
5: I believe that we're at the end of a process in which they tried to make clear what their um, what their bottom line was, and that they weren't heard because they didn't have to be heard.
1: Mm-hmm. This is so the now they're being they have to be heard. So now they're being hardliners in order to make sure they are respected
5: when they have the moment to do it and i think that, so i think what's going to happen is you've got you've got the freedom caucus on one side that i don't think is going to move and you got the democrats who um i mean there's some talk about oh maybe the democrats could make a deal and get something out of it the democrats are going to sit and watch this play out and, and they love it right and i mean you're you're right it's hurting the republican party but at a certain point that that's a that's a purging of the system that might be necessary to 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 strengthen the party, but the Democrats and I, I totally
1: hear that. I just fear it could be a ten or twenty-year process as opposed to ten or twenty months.
5: No, oh, yes, who knows how long it's going to be? But if you're trying to do it, you'd say, "I don't know how long this is going to take, but I want to start it now while well, I have the chance to start it." Mm-hmm. The Democrats—I don't think there's any chance the Democrats are going to um, either as a group or in some kind of a few of them breaking ranks do anything to help out the Republican situation. I don't think they're going to break ranks. They're no, to why would leader. they? He's a popular man. They'd be crazy. Yeah, why would they? So the only thing that can happen, I think, is that McCarthy and his group, no well, McCarthy, any, everyone in politics can say, you know, you see this all the time in presidential politics, people that are losing in primary saying, I'm in it till the end, I'm going to the convention. Two days later, they drop out. But yes. you, can't, you can't say, I'm thinking about dropping out because then you're gone, gone already. And it's the same with McCarthy. If McCarthy came out and said, well, you know, the way things are going, I got to think about whether I, well, that's the end of it. You just, either you say I'm in it or you say I'm out. No, but he's already stuck
1: in for six cycles of, of vote, which is beyond what I would have imagined this morning would have been the outcome. And it suggests that maybe he's, he's decided he's just not going to give up.
5: But at a certain point, it's, it's doing him and no one else any good. And the people that are voting for him are going to feel, like, in, increasingly stupid about it. Like, mm-hmm. what are we doing this vote ballot after ballot, and we're only losing ground?
1: Well, the, but point, you could be looking, you could be in McCarthy's camp, and, you know, if you're part of his team and sitting there and saying to the those against you, look, normally he would have gotten out of the contest, but here's the issue. There isn't a fallback candidate. There is nobody else who is garnering the vote. So we believe we're going to wear you down, and you're going to have to come back, so you might as well do it sooner rather than later.
5: I think there is a fallback candidate, and it's Steve Scalise. And I think the reason is not because he is any particular figure that unites everybody in an unusual way. I don't think that person can be found they could, if they could resurrect Ronald Reagan. No, but right? Scalise but I, is
1: popular, isn't he? And, and he he's is ideological. He's, he's a conservative.
5: He's a conservative. He's popular. But the main thing is, he's the next in line. And that means that there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a reason for people to say, let's go to him. He's a
1: natural like. movement.
5: A natural movement. And at a certain point, Scalise can't Move. Scalise has to be with McCarthy 100, percent and McCarthy probably isn't going to want to move. But at some point, McCarthy's allies, key people, have to will, will. I believe go to McCarthy and say, Kevin, this isn't working. We love you, but for the good of the party, and it's not doing you any good to get beat. How many it, it, already? I mean, it's funny that the newspaper reports are like McCarthy beaten for the fifth time. I mean. He can keep doing this. He might get beaten fifty times. There's
1: mm-hmm. been
5: the speaker challenges that have gone over a hundred ballots. Um,
1: that was back not, when you it, were a kid, though, wasn't
5: it? It was. <laughs> it was even a little before I was a kid. A hundred years ago. It's <laughs> funny. The last time this happened was exactly a hundred years ago. Um, and before that,
1: it's in it the stars, Joe mark It's in but the stars. I think
5: Scalise, and you know, the thing is, Scalise may not be. That much different ideologically than McCarthy, but,
1: but he being second is better than being first in line. Maybe in this case, Joe, we've got to hold it right there. Thank you very much, sir. My and pleasure.
5: We'll see if I was right.
1: Yeah, we will bring you back so we can flog you if you got it wrong. How about that?
5: I'll enjoy that. Thanks, Scott.
1: <laughs> uh... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Joe Markley. Eight six zero five two two nine eight four two. We've got rants coming up, phone calls coming up.